0: Greece's Prime Minister discusses the value of his country's soft power with Monocle's own Tyler Boulet, and Andrew Tuck. It's Joe Biden's first full day in office as President of the United States following yesterday's inauguration ceremony in Washington, D.C. And now that Donald Trump is firmly ensconced in the grand confines of his Mar-a-Lago mansion, we'll discuss how the language of the U.S. presidency will change. Following his departure, Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the late edition on Monocle 24. <music> Hello, and a warm welcome to the late edition. It is Thursday, the 21st of January. My name is Tom Edwards here at Midori House in London. Joining me today to discuss some of the day's big stories from around the world. Similarly, International Bunch, Monocle 24's Carlotto Ribello and Augustin Machilari, and Thomas Lewis. We've tracked him down and he's on the line as, well, good evening to you, one and all. We begin today's programme by leafing through the pages of Monocle magazine's February issue, which is out today on All Good Newsstands. For the lead story in the affairs section, Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Boulet, and our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, Travelled to Athens just at the end of last year to meet the Prime Minister of Greece, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. The three of them discussed a range of subjects from Greece's newfound sense of national confidence to regional geopolitics and Greek relations with the EU and the rest of the world. In this excerpt of their conversation with him, the Prime Minister explains why Greek soft power is, in his view, a key and flourishing asset. Looking at our issue, the rise of Greece as a soft power influencer. When we think of people around the world looking to Greece, what are some of the things that are part of that brand that are important as we explain the soft power of Greece?
1: We had set the bar very high when we first came into office. And I've, I haven't been shy about my ambitions. I do want to transform a country into a country that is open, and competitive, plays a leading role in the region and most of all, a country that embraces change and rises up to the challenges of a rapidly transforming world. And I think we have punched below our weight for quite some time. It's time to change that and punch above our weight. And uh, COVID, with all its dramatic consequences, has offered us an additional tool which we did not have at our disposal. And I'm talking about money. I'm talking about 32 billion euros that constitute the allocation for Greece from the Recovery and Resilience Fund. We've always said that we want a growth that is investment-driven. We were not sure we could mobilise enough money from the private and the public sector. Now we have an additional pocket of money that is very, very significant that can help us drive through really transformative projects on the green side, on the, on the digital side, on the investment side. We want to focus on, on high-end manufacturing in Greece. This is not just a country that can offer exceptional services and COVID gives us this additional firepower. I think COVID has also, is also helping us to reimagine the post-COVID world, and we try to make sure that we will be in the winner's column because I think there will be winners and losers post-COVID. I think one advantage that Greece has to offer in the post-COVID world is the fact that this is a beautiful country, and COVID has demonstrated it can work from anywhere. And you've also seen that you know during lockdown, a lot of people actually moved to Greece. They considered Greece to be safe. So this is a country that is, safe, well-connected, very well-positioned, 4 hours flight from London, but also 4 hours flight from Abu Dhabi, extremely well-positioned geographically. So why not consider Greece a country out of which you can actually work, not just spend your holidays, but permanently move to Greece? We've offered very, I think, attractive tax incentives for people who actually want to move their tax residence to Greece. I mean, they will be paying only 50% income tax for the next five years. So we don't just want to bring the diaspora back, we want to bring people like you back, like you're not, I wouldn't say back, but back as residents mm-hmm. to purchase property in Greece. So the people who read your, your magazine, who by nature are very international, should really consider that this is a country that has profoundly changed. The, the perception is different. And that was, I was so thrilled when I saw mm-hmm. your survey and your acknowledgement that this transformation is really happening very, very rapidly. And for us, this is a huge opportunity. For example, we were one of the first countries to auction off our 5G spectrum. We also set aside 25% of the proceeds and put them in a fund that will support startups that are active in the 5G ecosystem. So on top of everything that's happening in Greece, you also have a booming startup ecosystem. You have tech companies. Greece is suddenly becoming a tech hub. You have Microsoft announcing a huge investment in data centers. A lot of people noticed because when Microsoft decides to invest in a country, they've done their due diligence. I think Greece has huge potential. To become a center for healthcare, but also for next generation biopharma. If you just look at the landscape of the people who are active in the U.S. biotech and big pharma industry, you will find so many Greeks. The CEO of Pfizer is Greek, Regeneron is essentially a Greek-run company. So I set together you know, a group where we brought all the, the leading brains, Greek or Greek related, of the global biotech industry, and ask them what it is that we can do to start building, having you know, manufacturing capacity in Greece, do more clinical trials in Greece, and of course also offer, you know, high-quality healthcare you know, services at an affordable price for the entire region. You know, why should they go to London or the U.S. when they can get similar healthcare for a fraction of the price in Greece?
2: As you said, there are all of these things available. Andrew, what business would you like to start? Let's just play a game. Do you want to manufacture something? What would you like to do? And I'd like to know, what can the prime minister, what, if you went to the embassy, what would be on offer in terms of tax breaks, incentives, and also maybe what type of sectors? But what are you going to make, Andrew? Well, anybody who's doing high-end
0: manufacturing, as you said, what would be the advantages of being based in Greece rather than
2: going to any of your neighbours?
1: I'll give you a real example. We just signed a letter of, of intent with a German startup that is actually manufacturing small, relatively affordable electric cars called Ego, and we were never part of the manufacturing, the automotive manufacturing cluster. But they looked at Greece and said, "Look, there is an interesting regional market. You can service, you know, the Balkans, the Middle East, out of Greece. You have a much more friendly regulatory environment. You have." significant tax breaks, for depreciation, for R&D investment, but you also have something which not many people realize, a highly talented labor force, that you can still hire at competitive rates. So if you look at how much it costs you to hire an engineer in Greece, it's still cheaper than most European countries, and these are fantastically talented people. So when you talk, for example, to the CEO of Pfizer, Pfizer set up a big data analytics center in Thessaloniki, the one thing he'll tell you is that he's thrilled with the quality of the people. And actually, one out of four people who apply for a job now because they're planning to expand their capacity are people who apply from abroad. It's much easier if you live abroad to return and work for a multinational company than it is to work maybe for a Greek company. So if you add to all of that the quality of life in in Greece, the fact that this is a connected country, it's becoming a logistics center and you have a very good infrastructure, physical but also digital infrastructure, the question would be why not consider Greece? So a lot of the work that we do is just to place Greece on the map, because many people thought of Greece strictly as a country where you would want to come to open a nice hotel. And we're big on tourism, don't get me wrong. I think sustainable tourism is a huge theme, but I like to look at tourism not just as a standalone sector. Tourism has to go hand-in-hand with sustainability, has to go hand-in-hand with culture, has to go hand-in-hand maybe with, with education and has to be a tourism that is not just limited to the summer months. It has to be sustainable. There are islands that have clearly reached their capacity in terms of how many people they can accommodate, especially during the peak summer months. And there are other places where the sky is the limit. But we need to, in terms of uh, thinking about our spatial planning, what it is we do, how we build, these are absolutely critical aspects.
0: That was Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsutakis in conversation with Tyler Brillet and Andrew Tuck. The full interview, as mentioned, will be available in Monocle's February issue. That is on all good newsstands today and if you rather like the audio, will be broadcast as a special edition of our programme, The Chiefs. Uh, That's this Saturday, 12.30 London time, straight after The Foreign Desk. What an hour of listening that's going to be for you here on Monocle 24. Uh, Find out more, of course, as ever, at monocle.com, whether that is to listen to the show or to get hold of the magazine. Next, on the late edition, let's go stateside. It's President Joe Biden's first full day in office, following yesterday's inauguration ceremony on the grounds of the Capitol building, in Washington DC. Before we review yesterday's swearing in ceremony with our panel, let's hear from Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak, who joins us now. Chris, Biden was pretty quick to set the tone for what's to come in the next four
2: years. What did you make of it? He's been very quick indeed, Tom. Fifteen executive orders and a bunch more memoranda to various departments on his first half day on the job. And then today, his first full day. You know, some of his senior cabinet picks have been getting uh, confirmation hearings in the Senate. So there's been that to watch. And then for Biden himself today, the focus seems to really be on confronting the coronavirus pandemic. He's giving a major speech outlining his national strategy to curb the virus on what's actually a very significant day symbolically, because this time last year marked the first confirmed coronavirus case recorded in the United States. Now, one year on, we've seen over 400,000 deaths attributed to the virus and more than 24 million cases across the country. So Biden's goal today has really been to lay out his plan, both for cutting down on the number of daily cases, including with things like a national mask mandate and more robust testing, also increasing funding and capacity for hospitals, and of course, speeding up vaccine distribution across the country. But it's really also a day of sort of setting a new tone at the top to rally the US public, restore their trust in this federal response, and really remind them to just take the virus seriously at this point. And then uh, just to add globally, also significant today was the fact that Anthony Fauci, who's taken on a new role as chief medical advisor to Joe Biden. Fauci attended a World Health Organization executive board meeting for the first time, virtually, of course, but still, you know, a signal that the U.S. intends to re engage with the international organization that Donald Trump, of course, had said the United States intended to leave. The WHO, of course, has faced some criticism for being not quick enough early on to get on top of the virus and uh, particularly deal better with China in the early stages. Fauci, in his speech to the WHO, to the board, did say he was in favor of reforming the WHO, but really his comments today were intended to signal that the U.S. was re-engaging, both financially in its commitments and in terms of personnel uh, research, to really try and help not just the U.S., but the international community get on top of this virus.
0: Christian thank you very much indeed. Um, let's turn to our panel today: Thomas uh, Augustine, and Carlotta, all here. Carlotta, I'll start with you. You were watching yesterday's ceremony here in London. Indeed, we started watching it t- together. Let, m- let me ask you: what, what struck you most about the the occasion, and particularly about about Biden's address itself?
3: Well, I think one of the the most striking moments was right at the beginning, before uh, we crossed over to uh, the Bidens and Kamala Harris arriving at the Capitol with a departure of uh, Donald Trump from the White House. Um, It's something that uh, we're not usually used to see. Um, Traditionally, the outgoing president attends the inauguration. So having a parallel ceremony, a send-off for Donald Trump happening just moments before Joe Biden arrived at the Capitol was quite striking in itself. Uh, It's a piece of history happening, uh, not particularly a great one, but it was. Um, In terms of the address itself, of course, it was this message that we were all expecting um, appealing to unity you know crossing uh, across uh, reaching across the aisle to people who you might not agree with but just trying to unite the, the US this is obviously easier said than done and of course we can't forget that there are a lot of people in the United States that do not see Joe Biden as their legitimate president um due to due to false claims um ever since the inaug- the election uh Draw to a close. So, this is a very complex uh, scenario that Joe Biden uh, is inheriting uh, just to begin with. Uh, And then, of course, you add the current pandemic and everything else that's going on. It's not an easy job that he has ahead uh, of him. Um, So, I thought his address was, you know, it rose to the occasion. Um, It talked a lot about compassion as well and the importance of, you know, respecting one another. Um, And Honestly, uh, if that's what, you know, if Americans are able to do that, we'll be in a much better place uh, moving forward.
0: So that's the ambition, clearly. Thomas, let me ask you, because you've been Monocle's uh, election correspondent, of course. You've been based in North America, uh, well, a little further north, up in Toronto, of course, for the last few years. But in particular, over the last 12 to 18 months, as this very febrile uh, election took place, do, do you get the feeling that there is the capacity frankly even for biden's well intentioned messages to hit the spot and to actually bring about a bit of that unity and that forward momentum that Colotta was talking about or you know are you concerned that the the schisms that have been revealed over the last 5 years are you know potentially too profound for him to to tackle certainly quickly
4: I think on the one hand, we need to kind of, you know, just be sure that we're not ignoring either side of this, that now that Joe Biden is president, that everything will be fine. But I think we do also need to just, you know, temper things slightly and, and say that, you know, overwhelmingly, uh, people wanted Joe Biden to be their president. And so far, as Carlotta mentioned in his address yesterday, I thought it was an interesting address. There's a slight informality to it for me. Um, it sounded like one of the many speeches he gave on the campaign trail, on the stump, this kind of Quite sort of you know human kind of I'm speaking directly to you kind of idea rather than the big grand sweeping oratory of, of um, of inauguration ad- addresses. So I think it'll be really difficult to say Tom, but I think what other Republicans do will be key. Because for example, if Mitch McConnell when the time comes does eventually you know vote to convict Donald Trump in the impeachment trial in the Senate, then that may well be a huge break uh, in terms of how other Republicans see them and other Republican voters too. Um, who, you know, who would have supported Trump otherwise, will see that actually maybe the tide has gone out for him um, after this tumultuous presidency.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And that critical point about what happens to Trump, I think clearly shapes what happens to Trumpism from the, from the GOP point of view. Uh, Org, let me bring you in here, though. And instead of looking at the GOP, let me ask you about the Democrats and how they um, ideologically uh, integrate... Carmel Harris and her position, her influence, and, and her youth, frankly, into this administration. Because it's quite interesting that we've got very much the reversal of Biden's previous time involved with the White House, where he was the uh, the this the sort of avuncular conciliere figure to the progressive, young, new, exciting Barack Obama. Total role reversal of old fass He's 78, um, and he has the uh, progressive, exciting, dynamic, news still not super well-known globally uh, character of Kamala Harris, although, of course, her profile has been uh, massively increased in in recent months. Do you think it's a challenge for the Democrats, Org, in terms of how they, I don't know, do they need to sort of ideologically follow almost a a twin track? Because they've got to have half a mind on the kinds of processes that are going to be relevant as we look to 2024.
5: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting challenge, Tom. I was just listening to Tomas there and uh, his description of Biden's speech as this kind of informal thing. I was thinking about the way that you know, he is quite anachronistic. He's this kind of old 20th century figure, blue collar, sort of old fashioned politics. He's quite analog, if I can put it like that. Um, and, you know, I think there's definitely a case to be made that post Barack Obama, there was this kind of reactionary progressivism in Trump. You know, this populism that spoke to a new way of doing politics, which is what people uh, obviously saw in him this myth that he was going to drain the swamp obviously the lie was put to that uh, throughout the course of his uh, his, his his presidency venal uh, appointments of cronies, we'd just seen him uh, pardon uh, dozens of people uh, insiders essentially, So, so obviously that was specious but I wonder if that appetite for some sort of change is still there and I do think that it's going to be hard, I guess Biden set himself up during the campaign as um, more of a placeholder, didn't he? He didn't promise that he was going to do anything other than try and unite the country. Uh, he has had a lot of criticism from more progressive, uh, well, both Democrats and 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 those further on the left who say that he represents a return to a status quo that wasn't working. Um, but I guess maybe, you know, if I can be a little corny about it, you know 4 years of biden might give the country a bit of a chance to heal and there is the argument that a safe pair of hands is what's needed when something which really i think it's hard to overstate how destructive the forces that donald trump legitimized and unleashed have the potential to be if that genie can be put back in the bottle then maybe that is what you know biden's role is kind of is 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 to be and i think that that's a very noble role i think that that focus, that project is quite enough uh, for the Democrats at the moment. While they maybe build in the background a kind of a more, uh, a less alienating sort of progressivism uh, that doesn't kind of, you know, push the buttons of, 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 of those in America who, who've been brought up to you know, equate uh, a health service that's free at the point of use with communism or something like that. Give that time to kind of heal over and, and maybe look towards a more utopian future. I mean, that's a, a utopian outlook, Tom, but um, I, I, I'd be really interested to watch it. We need a bit of utopia, Org. I also wouldn't
0: mind a bit of tedious status quo. After the last few years, I think that would be in good order. Um, Another interesting point, of course, is what the rest of the world uh, on the outside looking in makes of these early moments of Biden's administration. A little earlier today, we spoke to Sarah Churchwell, the author of Behold America, a history of America first and the American dream, who summarised for us why the rest of the world has reason, like you, Org, for optimism in this new presidency.
6: I certainly can't remember a world leader whose removal was greeted with so much joy in my lifetime. I mean, it was like the toppling of a dictator um, globally. You know, I mean, certainly we've seen national scenes when when, you know, dictators were toppled. But this was the whole world was waiting for a return just to stability. You know, I, you've been talking this morning about about the, the stress on unity, which was absolutely true. But Biden also stressed truth over and over again. And, facts. And you know, his press secretary gave a uh, his new press secretary, uh, you know, gave a um Uh, you know, a, a, a press briefing on the first day You know, and there hasn't been a press briefing from the White House now, you know, in weeks or possibly months, um, and promised to speak truth even if it was uncomfortable because that is what Biden has committed himself to. So that is a tremendous relief to everybody. It means that we all have, you know, a common ground of basic stability um, that we can begin to build, you know, a a more secure and stable um, uh, country nationally for America and international uh, uh, relations upon. And I just think that. incredibly important for everyone.
0: Let's wrap up today's program by talking briefly about Donald Trump. It's not usually the done thing for an outgoing president to hold his own going away party on the day of the successor's inauguration, but Trump uh, ever one to buck the trends did that at Andrew's Joint Air Force Base. Here's some of what he told the small group of supporters there gathered.
4: Despite that, the things that we've done have been just incredible, and I couldn't have done done it without you. So just a goodbye, we love you, we will be back in some form. And again, uh, I want to just in leaving, I want to thank our Vice President Mike Pence and Karen. I want to thank Congress because we really worked well with Congress, uh, at least certain elements of Congress. But we really did. We've gotten so much done that nobody thought would be possible. But I do want to thank Congress. And I want to thank all of the great people of Washington, D.C., all of the people that we worked with to put this miracle together. So, have a good life. We will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Uh,
0: Donald Trump bidding farewell there, as perhaps only Donald Trump could before heading for Florida. Um, Thomas Lewis, that'll be the last time we hear Donald Trump's voice, probably not for that long, one imagines. Uh, I don't know. What, 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 did you, what did you make of his, his last words? Will you, will, In some ways, will you miss hearing from him?
4: Well, I think Augustine and Carlotta and I were discussing this a little earlier today, actually. I think there is this slightly strange feeling that it will feel like an absence, not having the very specific way that that Donald Trump talks. The one quick comment I wanted to make actually about this pretty unusual uh, farewell party, it was relatively small at this Air Force base. You don't hold a party on the day that you're leaving office, but Donald Trump did. Um, And of course, you know, we'd seen Melania looking very funereal kind of at this sitting on the sort of dais behind him then arriving at palm beach looking like she's about to start her holiday Uh, i I thought what was the one bit of stagecraft that i thought was extraordinary i was watching the live feed and as air force one was taxiing out of the airport uh uh, my my way by frank sinatra was playing and whoever had <laughs> orchestrated this timed it perfectly to the song so by the time frank sinatra right at the end was starting to say his final i did it my way the wheels of air force 1 went up and away he went and i was like my gosh you know if enough if as much detail had been given to actually governing then maybe it would have been a very different past four years but it was quite quite a quite a spectacle that only donald trump uh, donald trump could have pulled off probably
0: yes yeah, it's fairly sort of poetic imagery carlos will you miss, I don't know, if not the man, will you miss the cadence, the unique cadence of the Trumpian
3: voice? I will miss the the inconsequential things about Trump. You know, if if at least the things he would say didn't have so much impact all over the world, that would make it a bit more hilarious. But I mean, this we're talking about the president that basically told a seven-year-old that Santa did not exist I mean who does that as a grown-up so or during a Halloween party instead of putting a a chocolate in you know the kids like bag put it on top of his head so (laughs) who this these parts of Donald Trump will be missed because at least gives me hope that I am a functioning adult Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, so and of course who can forget cafefe those bits will be missed but I really am looking forward to not having to wake up every Every day thinking what the hell happened overnight what did he say
0: indeed um org if i'm asked tell me somebody who would tell a five-year-old the center doesn't exist i would throw augustin matulari's uh, hat into the ring um <laughs> I, I strangely not a kindred spirit exactly trump but somebody who you know provides lots of ammo for your you know daily
5: discourse
0: is, is it going to leave a, an unfillable gulf for you
5: Yes, but I think what I'm looking forward to is 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 a kind of subsequent reappraisal of, of the Trump administration. I obviously caveat this with uh, serious disapproval. I think he's indecent, frankly, as a person. You can't, as I said, overstate how dangerous what he exposed in the American psyche was. But he was so funny, Tom. There's a whole list of his nicknames that he made up for people on Wikipedia, <laughs> and they're very very jokes i i i know that i know that as as carlotta said what he said had a terrible impact around the world he had too much power but he was a buffoon there were so many hilarious moments i was thinking about them today he uh, there was a lunar eclipse doctors in america said under no circumstances should you look at this without eye protection what was he photographed doing he was photographed staring at the sun (laughs) <laughs> there's a there's so many iconic images too many to count the orb in saudi arabia him and other world leaders clutching an orb he was he was he was they said that he killed satire um, I know that you and I have had that conversation, but I'm not sure that's true. I think he was a self-satirising kind of nodule, and uh, and, I'll, and I'll miss that.
0: Okay, I think we better wrap it up uh, pronto <laughs> to all of our, my guests today. Thank you for being with us. Uh, that was Augustin Machilari. before that Carlotta Ribello, uh, and Thomas Lewis. Thanks to them all for being on the programme. That is it for today's late edition. Thanks too to our studio manager, Louis Allen. I'm Tom Edwards. Thank you very much for listening. Do join us at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye for now.